Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food and Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman. My guest today is somebody who I hadn't actually gotten a chance to ever sit down with before. Um, I think of him as a man in motion uh, in a whole lot of ways. Uh, he was a food and wine best new chef in 2014, has won all manner of accolades, uh, came from the Alinea family, ran Next, has a much talked about and loved and lauded restaurant uh, called Dialogue and is about to open Pajali. Welcome, Dave Barron. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, my gosh. What, what, so I was saying I think of you as a person in motion, and it's funny because it's sort of reflected in even some of the titles of, of your things. There was Next. Next. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like never ending. Yeah. And the fact that, and I really do want to hunker down on this, that you are a really avid athlete. I try yeah. to be. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> I wouldn't say like executing at a high level, but mm-hmm. attempting to. Right. That that makes sense. <laughs> you know you what? Like... It does, but I'm I'm wondering, okay, let's let's just dive right in sure. here yeah, into yeah. I've been so interested in this overlap of chefs being athletes. And for a lot of them, it's picking up something that maybe they'd left behind when they all of a sudden had an aha moment of, you know, hey, maybe I'm not feeling so great. I want to get back into this thing that always brought me joy. There are some people who use it as uh, basically an alternative to substance abuse. There are people who use it to deal with their, their mental health. There are all different reasons. But the thing that I keep coming back to is that y'all are people who strive for perfection in this <laughs> really intense way. If people know anything about Alinea and where you came from and what you're doing now, see your Instagram. They know that perfection is of great interest to you. How did, let's, how did you start doing this, the the the, the athlete part of it? Or, or well, when so did it intersect? I think, I think I got my first pair of ice skates when I was like 18 months old. Are you Canadian? No, but um, <laughs> may as well have been. I, until I was... Five, six, somewhere in there. Um, we lived in Marquette, Michigan, mm-hmm. like way up in the UP. Right. Um, and my dad played hockey in college. And so, like, when you live up there and you're that age, like, you get your skates right away. <laughs> They're issues. Uh, so, like, I could walk, I could skate kind of thing. And um, I played hockey my entire life, um, all the way up through into college. Um, I had a handful of knee injuries, which kind of ended that. Um, so, you know, hockey and lacrosse was like the side note of something that I really loved. And so I always loved the whole aspect of team sports and the camaraderie, but also the competition. Um, It was just, even when I wasn't into it and wasn't passionate about it, I kind of had to do it because that's just what I did in my family. Like my dad Mm -hmm. was the coach for the team and I played and like he wasn't, even when he wasn't the coach of my team, it was Mm -hmm. still like, you're coming with me. You know, right. and so and that offers structure. Yeah, and you know, you fall in love with it, and you understand why it's important to respect and appreciate the people around you, even if you don't like them. Mm-hmm. You know, because you need them, and you need each other. And so, I was a goalie, so it was oh. a totally different perspective on it. Because goalies are all weird. Yeah, um, I, as a person who was occasionally a soccer goalie, yeah. y- yes, they're just like a little quirkier. <laughs> but you know, I think what people who don't or have never played hockey realize is that the goalie almost ends up being like the quarterback. Because from a distance, you're looking at the entire perspective and kind of, you know, you're talking to your team and you're helping set up plays and so on and so forth. And Okay, so it's, it's your team's job to make sure that nobody gets near you. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's everything about a team sport, I think, translates to a lot of moments in life. 
whether yeah. it's you know the workplace, whether it's your personal relationships with people, you you know it, it's like that the metaphor for the trust fall thing, right? Like right. you have to be willing to relinquish control and rely, rely on the people around you and trust them and know that what you're doing will be supported and backed by the people you're with. And I think that can translate to any aspect of life, but when you start at like you know, four years old on a team learning how to pass a puck to someone, mm -hmm. that immediately is like, by the time you're six, you're not even looking at them when you're passing. You just trust that they're there. And so those relationships, I think, in, you know, even my business partner, Anne, who runs all of our business operations, she played soccer growing up. And we always talk about the team sport aspect and how that applies to everything. Yeah. So please educate me on this because I'm, you know, only a casual observer of hockey. I've only ever been to one oh, game. It was yourself. it was a great game. Nashville Predators first season. Sure. Yeah, because they were really trying to entice people to come. Um, it seems like an incredibly uh, physically brutal sport. That there, you know, I, I think of of something, of, you know, sort of other team sports where there isn't maybe so much collision sure. <laughs> of bodies. And is there something psychological that that kind of outlet of uh, you know, potential physical aggression or something like that can do for you? Like, what's the psychic part of that? Yeah, it's interesting because I think as you watch it on TV and you, as you watch it from, like, a side spectator thing, yeah. people love the fight. Yeah. Right? And they love <laughs> the huge checks. But I've always thought of a sport like that as more of a finesse sport. It's almost like if you start talking about the greatest players, yeah. like if you start talking about Wayne Gretzky, he was, like, one of the least physical players. It was all, like, and no one could hit him. He just had so much finesse, he just made his way through. And, you know, he's, like, dancing on everyone, and, like, the puck was on a string at all times. Like, he never lost control. And now if you move forward, like, even the great players now, they they do hit, and they there is that, like, you know, physical mentality of it. But it's still far outweighed by the finesse of the game and the elegance to it. Like, the way you can move on skates, on ice, around people with, like, 10 people on the – or 12 people on the ice at once – so the physical aspect for me was never the intriguing part. It was more of the, you know, I, I guess just the aspect of, like, the competition. Yeah. And, like, the striving to, like, you're not going to beat me and you're not going to beat us. Yeah. So at, at this point, where does food start to come into play for you? So you're, you're athlete, and that takes yeah. a monster amount of time. If you're operating on that kind of level with that dedication, there isn't always necessarily time for, you know, there's obviously academics and things, but sure. are, is there something in you that's noticing food? I think without realizing it, maybe. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I never grew up wanting to be a chef. I didn't go to culinary school. Like, that was never an aspect of my life. Um, but my dad was, he t he's a professor. He teaches hotel restaurant stuff. Oh, um, wow. So you're, yeah. you've got some stuff determined like yeah, in yeah. all different ways. From like he was a professor at Syracuse for okay. 25 years. Yeah. And um, worked in their hospitality program. And so, um, you know, I was always around kitchens. It was a place I was comfortable in. Like it wasn't uncommon. Even when we lived up in Marquette and he was at Northern Michigan, after school, I would go to the college and just hang out in the kitchen and like play in the kitchen because that's what was fun while he was, you know, finishing classes or sitting in his office or grading papers. And so, you know, I remember being younger and making an omelet with him or his students being there and like, I'm standing on a milk crate next to him, but none of that seemed weird. Like I wasn't trying to cook. It was just like, Oh, I'll make this or I'm yeah. hungry or, um, and it was just fun to be around people doing things. So I wanted to do it too. It didn't matter what people were doing. It's like, Oh, you're doing this. That looks neat. 
Yeah. Um, you know, it's like you go from playing with Legos to <laughs> playing with things where you're still assembling components to make something else, right? It just translates to a different medium. Um, and so, you know, cooking was just a thing. But I, I went to college and studied business and psych and philosophy. I didn't have – it was never – like something I was pursuing. But summer jobs were in restaurants, you know. Yeah, so what kind of cooking was that? Well, there was this... So I spent summers in Michigan with my mom and then school year in New York with my dad. So when I was, like, 13, my stepdad said, you're old enough to get a job, you should get a job. Like, when he, I think he, when he was, like, 10, he was, you know, driving his dad's tractors around. Um, and so he's like, you got to get a job. That's it. And... The big job in Southwest Michigan was like corn detasseling, where you oh. ride on the back of a pickup truck and you grab the ear of corn and you pull the tassels out. And I really didn't want to do that <laughs> at all. Um, and so, but at farm labor, as farm labor in Michigan, you can work at 13. Otherwise, it's 14, at least at the time. I mean, this is like 100 years ago. Um, and so there was a diner behind our house at a flea market on the other side of the asparagus field. And so his like third cousin managed it. So I got a job there. I started washing dishes at 13, and then the next summer when I was 14, I worked the takeout window. Um, the next summer when I was 15, I was toast boy. Tell me about being toast boy. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you can imagine like that classic Midwest diner of like yeah. there's a counter with the red stools that are metal that kind of swivel and like the bad linoleum countertop. Mm -hmm. And then there's the flat top, and to one side there's a toaster, and to the other side there's a steam table. Basically, the tickets come in on the left, the omelets and pancakes are made on the flat top, the plates and the toast are here, and then it goes out, I put in the toast. <laughs> and so the whole trick to being a toaster, <laughs> the toast person, is that you, as the chef lead cook, can make an omelet way faster than I can make a piece of toast. So I was like trying to stay four orders ahead, and then if you fall behind, the food's sitting there, but the toast isn't ready. Super stressful. You have to like wipe your cutting board, you brush and butter on with like a paintbrush. That was a mess. For like a 15-year-old, it was like the most stressful thing I'd ever done. Um, but I did it for a summer. And by the end, I moved from toaster for breakfast to steam table at lunch, which was exciting because I got to use the deep fryer. Oh, um, any injuries? No, but I threw everything in there. Like, Why would you not? Yeah, like I learned very quickly not to throw ice cubes in there. Yep. Um, <laughs> or a whole egg in a shell seems like it might be cool. Yeah, that cool. Um, but cool. Yeah, it's super. I mean, we cooked bacon in a fryer. <laughs> I can't even imagine how delicious everything must have been coming out of that. That was, was great. It was so gross. Uh, but it was awesome. Um, and so, you know, it was just like a fun, comfortable place. Like, I'd been there for, for at that point, three years. The next summer I came back and I, was, I worked the griddle, so I was the brunch cook. Um, and it was like, you know, I was right behind my house. I, I didn't live there, so I was meeting, you know, kids my age essentially that were you know who lived in the area so I was making friends and it was like a good little weird sense of community there I mean it was at a flea market which was strange because you know you walk outside and it's like little knock it's like basically a giant garage sale right in in like a dirt field um in in a little town called Pawpaw yeah. So if you're ever in Pawpaw, Michigan <laughs> go to the flea market do you remember the toast boy of Pawpaw right it was a glorious moment um <laughs> And you always smelled weird when you left. Like you always I was going to ask, like diner. so you're going to hang out with like your new friends and stuff and like... And we all smelled the same. Okay, so okay. <laughs> so yeah. you're not just like the dude who reeks of fryer. No, but like literally, like, even if you'd eat there, you'd smell like a fryer. So you'd, I'd come <laughs> home from work and I would have to change in the garage and then put those clothes right in the washer and dryer before I went to the house because mm -hmm. it was just, it stunk. It was a diner, like right. an old diner. 
Um, You've made me really want toast and eggs now. <laughs> oh, blueberry pancakes are the best. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so like the, the, the kitchen just became a comfortable place because I just, you know, you, you're in it and you know it and you make friends there. And so it was like the cooking aspect was just like that was a fun challenge because it was, you know, every time you got a, a better job, you'd look at the other person above you and say, well, I want their job now and I want their job now. And so you're always trying to do a little more and it's it's not it's not unlike the, the, the translation of sports where you're like, okay, I'm on this team, but that's the team I need to get on. And now I need to try out for that team. Like you're always still trying to move up and you're always still relying on the person next to you. Like either you're trying to beat them or you're trying to keep up with them, you know? So like whether it was like washing dishes with the guy who was faster than me on the pot sink or trying to get the dishes done before they needed them on the line, you know, it's like you're always trying to keep up with something. So when did it occur to you that this could be a thing? So I, so my dad growing up every, I think it was, it's in like May, the, the Chicago restaurant show. Like yeah. The, the oh, NRA show. it just happened okay. recently, I believe. Yeah. It's not out of Chicago. I forget. Right. Year, yeah. It's, but. it was within the last few weeks and it, that is a monster. If you could explain it to people for, who don't know. It's, so it sounds cool. It sounds like the restaurant show and you're like, oh, restaurants and food and snacks, <laughs> but it's like a giant trade show of all things restaurant from like. Like, my dad would go because he would scout things for the school. So it's like, okay, well, we have a new baking kitchen, and I want to meet these people that have these different ovens. But, you know, if you have a food truck, if you have a – like, everything's there. And um, the – you know, it's it's funny because you can kind of see how – now in retrospect, as I think about it, you can see how whatever the current trend is, in, like, five years, it'll all be there. So um, my dad would go every year from when I was, like – as, as long as I can remember, he'd always come back with these like plastic Edward Don cups with little measurements. And so as a little kid, I was like, oh, did you get my cup this year? Oh. Um, and so I was a junior in college or between my sophomore and junior year. I went to college north of Chicago. And um, he sent me an email and was like, hey, what are you doing? Do you want to come to the restaurant show with me this year? And I was, I think, 20, 19, 20, somewhere in there. Um, and I didn't have anything to do. It was like soft, it was like summer after my <laughs> sophomore year of college. What am I going to do? Um, Make toast. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to go back to the diner. I wanted to do something cool. Um, and so I uh, was like, sure. Yeah, I'll go to the restaurant show with you. And um, the whole thing about the restaurant show is that afterwards he would like go out to these cool dinners with his colleagues. And I think that year he did like MK and Topla Bombo and um, oh, this MK. place called Mambo Grill, which didn't last very long, but someone told us to go there. Um, and so I went with him to the show and it was like the year of the smoothie. So right. there were <laughs> Who smoothies knew that it would become such a thing everywhere. Like, like just smoothies and slushies and like, so I just walked around and had smoothies. Um, and after the show we went to MK. God, and, I uh, love that. I, it's, it's closed recently, didn't it? Yeah. They, Cornick yeah. had a, like the building sold, the new landlord wouldn't make. Update. There was a dispute, mm-hmm. whatever it was, and ultimately Cornick was like, "It's been twenty years. It's time to say goodbye." It's that was a beautiful room. The, the old paint f- factory. Food, oh, the food was fantastic. Yeah. I, that was really a Chicago treasure. So that I remember the three of us sitting there. It was my dad, myself, and one of his colleagues. And I remember sitting in this dining room and looking up and seeing these like bow truss old ceilings with the skylight and wood wall or brick walls and this like beautiful like glass wine fridge in the dining room and I was like this is like a movie set like this is amazing I've never seen anything like it and at the time I was vegetarian and you know vegetarian meant like I made like 
pasta and red sauce Same. or I ate potato <laughs> chips. Like, I did seven years. You yeah. know, and so, um, you know, because I was vegetarian, like, I, I think it was like all of high school and college. Yeah. And, but like a lazy vegetarian. Oh, like, say, less of mac and yeah. cheese. It was yeah, and, and like, like ramen. And... Like, I'm really hungry. I'll eat some fried fish. Like lazy vegetarian. <laughs> we'll say a casual vegetarian. Right. Um, but for the most part, I was pretty, I stuck to it. Like, there was never, like, I'm going to have pepperoni pizza right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why I did it. It was like, here's a challenge, so I'll do it. And I just stuck with it. Yeah, for me, it was sort of an identity, personal challenge kind sure. of thing. Like, can I keep doing this? Well, I grew up in Syracuse, and it was like, that was the big, like, straight-edge vegan hardcore scene. <gasps> yeah, I, I was know, in like, art school. And I it... loved Earth Crisis. They were the coolest <laughs> band ever. Um, and so, like, Spo- all my uh, friends uh, were straight-edge sp- vegan. Spoon bracelet or anything. Just X's on the hand. Yeah. Like, big, fat markers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, was awesome. <laughs> did you drink any Yoohoo? No. It, that was a big straight edge thing. That's, yeah, I never went down that road. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, it was like a cool scene. Like, especially when, yeah. you're, when you're 14 and you want something to do. Like, we're going to go to the Hungry Charlie's to go to the hardcore show at like one in the afternoon because it's a no drinking show. Yeah, they're really yeah. great shows. Um, yeah, so any, I was, so I was vegetarian. I'm at this restaurant and, and, you know, you, you're always like, trying just like are there potatoes are there something <laughs> right um and they had this like goat cheese ravioli with um just like Blanc and tomatoes and peas mm-hmm. it was like the best thing i'd ever had in my life um they did like some other dish for an entree but it, i was like so swept away um and so we left that and we had a couple other good meals and then um as we're finishing the show my dad's bringing me back to college to get my car and my stuff and he's asked what I'm doing that summer. I know have plans. And, he, and so he says, my grandma's really sick. She has pancreatic cancer. Oh, God, I'm sorry. Um, and she asked if I, or he asked if I wanted to go live with her for the summer and help take care of her. And he and my uncle were going to take turns flying in, helping wrap up the estate, things like that. But they just wanted someone to be there. Um, and so I said, yeah, I'll go. And we uh, got up there in the first, uh, this was in northern lower Michigan. So like... 30 minutes south of the Mackinac Bridge in just outside Petoskey. And um, so I went there and we went to this restaurant called Latitude. And Latitude, if you remember Tribute in Detroit. I, um, no, I never got to go. Oh, so Latitude was in that group. And it was like that and Tapawango where Stuart from State Bird oh, okay, uh, was yeah. from. Those were like the two best restaurants up there. And um, so we went and I was like, this is so cool because it's like a Michigan nautical themed version of MK. You know, in my head, that's what I was thinking. It was, it was like, like, and I got a goat cheese pizza there, and I was like, "This is incredible!" You know, it was like the, it was like the ravioli on a pizza. Um, and so I went back like a week or so later, and I wanted the pizza at the bar while I was, you know, for lunch while I was just like popping around the area. And I asked, I just like started talking about the bartender and told him where I was from, and I was looking for a summer job. And he's like, "I think we're hiring." And so I talked to the chef and um, or the sous chef, someone. And um, somehow they were like, it ended with, sure, I mean, we'll give you a two-week trial, and if it doesn't work, that's it. So I got a kitchen job. Most important two-week trial of your life, probably. Yeah, and so, you know, I went into that thinking I was awesome. (laughs) You you could fry the hell out of some stuff. Yeah, and I think I kind of left it also thinking I was awesome, but for like 80% of it, I realized I wasn't awesome. Right. Um, In what ways weren't you awesome? Well, like they said, chop shallots, and I threw a bunch of shallots into a robo coup. Okay. And like the chef like had a meltdown, or like 
the stock pot in my head was the garlic. Like all my scraps went into that chicken stock. I was like, oh, cutting bell peppers, seeds in the, in the stock pot. One day he's like, you have to stop. Um, I was a vegetarian, so at the time I wasn't like, they told me to go clean and organize the walk-in cooler. So I picked up the brine and I picked up the chicken stock that was the same color, and I married them because I wasn't tasting things oh, and they weren't dear labeled. Oh, God. And, you know, there's a lot of, like, <laughs> yeah. stupid things like but that. Yeah, but, but you're... Someone who never worked anywhere. Right, do. you're how old? You're... Uh, 19. Yeah. Maybe I just turned 20, but somewhere in there. Um, but I loved it. It was, like, this perfect balance of, like, balance of art and sports, which were the two things I was really into. Um, and so at the end of that... You know, they, they were amazing. Like, they were they, they knew I had no experience. They were really, really great people. And the next time, like, hey, if you want to come back and work with us, we'll have a job for you. Maybe you can work on the night line. Because I was just AM prepping lunch. Um, I was, like, so excited about it. I didn't go back there and work. I did, like, I screwed around the summer between my junior and senior. I didn't do anything. Um, but at that moment, I was like, I think I want to be a chef. And so my thought was after I graduate college, I'll apply to culinary school. I'll do that. Um, and I, I think I'm still enrolled at Kendall college. You never did the, no, like I paid the my final $35 pay- enrollment <laughs> fee and met with a couple counselors and, um, couldn't afford it. Cause you can't get financial aid if you've already had, like I already was pursuing an undergrad, like I had a bachelor's degree, so you couldn't get an associate. I mean, you could get it, but yeah. you couldn't get financial aid and I couldn't afford it. And I wasn't gonna take out a bunch of loans. Right. Um, because I already had those from college. Like, why was I going to do all this? And so. I just thought, I'll just start applying places and cooking. Yeah. So I got um, Chicago magazines, like, every year they put out their top 20 list, and I applied to all of those. And um, I got a stage at, like, Spring, uh, which at the time was awesome. It was Sean McLean's restaurant. He just won a beard. It was, like, I think number four in Chicago. And it, uh, a friend of mine from college was dating Sean, and so she introduced us, and that was a disaster of a tryout. What like happened? I, I just stood in the back corner and like picked oxtail for four hours while they did service, you know, and mm. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never been in a kitchen like that. Um, and at the end, Sean sat me down and had a very like polite but candid conversation, kind of discouraging me from continuing in this career path. He's like, I don't think he's like, I know your friend Holly, who's now his wife. And I think they have a couple kids, and, but he's like, I know she said you want to do this, but. I don't know if this is right for you or maybe going to school first would be the thing. But like, and at that time, like I'd have probably, I wouldn't have hired myself and I probably would have had a very serious conversation with that person too. I think it's a kind thing to do. Yeah. He didn't do it in any malicious manner. It was just like very like, you're a friend of a friend. I don't know if this is for you. Like you have a degree, go do something else. Mm -hmm. Um, As in sort of, I wouldn't wish this life on you. Maybe that, maybe like, I'm going to save you from failure later. I don't know. Like so many different things. And, um, then I got, you know, I kept applying and true at the time oh, was yeah. pretty awesome. You know, I, who it, was cooking there at the time? Uh, it was still Jason Robinson. Okay. It so. was always Tramato when I was there. Right. Um, but Jason, J Rob was the, the chef de cuisine. And so I, they'd let anyone stage. They just wanted free labor. Okay. So I think I staged there like six times. Uh, like did six free days in the kitchen and I really thought I was awesome then. Like I was like putting that on the resume as I was applying to other places. Um, and I eventually got stages at Blackbird and oh. MK. Oh goodness. And uh, how'd that feel walking into MK? Well, that's where I worked. They hired me. So, uh, MK, I talked to the chef and that was the restaurant that made me fall in love with this whole idea. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm sitting there talking to the chef and I'm like, Stephen Dunn was the chef at the time. And he, um, 
he, you know, he'd come from Puck. He was at, like, Post Trio, I think. And um, Mindy Siegel was the pastry chef. Oh, and God, she's spectacular. Yeah, it was such a talented team. This guy, uh, Amador Acosta, was, like, he worked for Michael White for years. Um, but he was, like, the garbage guy. And, you know, there was this guy, Kevin Heston, who'd just become Sue, and he was, like, Wiley's Sue out here for a little while. Like, there was, like, a lot of talented people before they'd taken that next step. Um, and he just talked to me about, you know, he's like, I didn't go to culinary school either. Someone gave me a chance. He's like, our French fry guy just quit. We'll make you, you can be essentially the poem freak guy, like the guy working next to the meat roast guy. I was like, fryer? As, as we have set. established, you're, yeah, you're a great a fryer. fryer. <laughs> yeah. um, when, when is the last time you've worked a fry station? Then. <laughs> yeah, that was it. <laughs> MK. I think you need to like just step yeah. into somebody's restaurant while you're in New York and go work the fry station. Yeah, just let me work this, please. <laughs> oh, we didn't have a fryer at True. We didn't have a fryer at Alinea. We don't have a fryer at Dialogue. We're not going to have one at the new place. Yet. Um, <laughs> right? All we have are rondos of oil just sitting in the corner. Um, so, yeah, so I, I worked at, I got a job at MK. And, you know, my first three months, I was like, a disaster in all accounts. Like I was terrible in the kitchen. I was trying to become like hang out with the cool kids and we were going out all night and drinking and like crawling to work the next day. And, you know, I was just coming like right out of college. Like I, I moved from college to downtown. I lived with two guys I went to college with who were, you know, your typical, like I just got out of college and I have a well-paying job. Well, one did and one had no job. And we had a kegerator, so the way money is <laughs> you friends come over and they pitch ten bucks and all of a sudden for a sixty dollar keg you have two hundred and fifty bucks and that's how we paid rent. So, you know, I was not I was kind of continuing the college lifestyle. Yeah. Um but I mean I, I think you in your young twenties or whatever, like you have license to be a dumbass for a while yeah, before you like, like you know, I lived above the original Pops for Champagne, which is like this amazing champagne bar in Chicago, but I was friends with the bartenders, so you know, I'd go down there and they'd be like, you know, shots and drinks. It was, I was living the best life just south of Wrigley Field. <laughs> um, and so after like probably four months of that, maybe a little longer, I was just kind of getting – like I sucked. I sucked at everything. And um, um, I started I started improving at, um, at MK. I started kind of wrapping my head around it. It, it was like my roommates had jobs at that point. We were kind of like – pulling it together. Um, and then two of my really good friends that I played hockey with uh, from college were moving downtown. And they asked if I wanted to move in with them because my apartment was like the party house. Like everyone, yeah. would, you know, even... You can't escape it then. Yeah, and like I'm getting home from work at two in the morning, but like they've been there going strong all day since like like three in the afternoon, you know? It's like, it was like that kind of house. Yeah. Um you know, like, we didn't have a table in one room. We had a beer dye table, which is a drinking game where, like, there are constantly tournaments going on. Um, That's not sustainable. <laughs> no. And so, you know, and, and it was because it was, like, it was just, like, a lot of, like, meathead hockey players. So it wasn't this, like, drug scenario. It was just a lot of beer. Right. Like, lots and <laughs> lots of beer, um, which is good because somehow that part really never entered my side of life. It was just, like drinking with the guys kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so the friends were moving downtown and they had like, you know, real jobs and that we talked about moving in together and we eventually got a three, a three bedroom together. And, um, we still kind of had that. Our two other friends moved in directly across the street. So it was like 
the five of us, uh, like yeah. myself and the four Canadians. Um, and we had that mentality for a little bit of like going out late. And then one day we all kind of looked at each other. We're like, we're all fat and gross. And what are we doing? You know, and so collective reckoning. Yeah. So one roommate just signed us all up for a half marathon. He's like, we're going to do a half marathon. And another roommate got us all gym, gym memberships, essentially. Like, he's like, we're all going to go to this gym down the street. Um, and the gym was really cool because it used to be the Chicago Real World House. And then they made a new oh, gym. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it, like, felt awesome. Yeah. You know, it was, like, really, like, neat aesthetic. Um, and so we started working out. And we started, you know, I started trading late nights for early mornings going for a run with them. And I was kind of having this epiphany where I, as the sous chef who came to WD out here, he and I were talking one day and he and I become friends. I was like, how did you get into this industry? He's like, well, he's like, I grew up in, in Iowa. Like, I didn't really have a lot going on. It was kind of like construction or jail or cook. And so I started cooking and I took a step back and I thought about it. I was like, I have these friends who I've had such a certain life with. And then I have these restaurant people that if I wasn't standing in this restaurant at this moment with them, they're not people I ever would have been friends with. And I'm not establishing real relationships. I'm, st I'm establishing relationships that are occurring by default. Like, okay, I'm in this room with five of you. That means I should probably be friends with three of you. And it just occurred to me that I wasn't doing anything to better myself. I was just becoming a part of something that was there, that I was intrigued by. And so I, st I tr started trading all my late nights for early mornings and would go – straight home after work and, you know, try to wake up with my roommates at like 7 a.m. to go for a run before they'd go to work. And um, everything started changing. Like this is probably somewhere between six and nine months into working at MK. And, you know, I'm losing weight. I'm feeling better. I'm doing a much better job at work. Like everything's starting to make sense. I'm starting to move through the line. At a year, I was all of a sudden off a station and starting help, like helping expedite and overseeing some of the private parties in the dining room upstairs and basically getting freedom to do whatever I want at this restaurant. Mm -hmm. And um, it just kept improving. And as my life outside work was getting more focused and improving and I was feeling better, my professional life was too. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I drew that line and separated and said, okay, work is a job, not a social life. And the people that I've been in engaging with that have been a part of my life for so long, there's a reason that they've been that. You know, it's not like in college you go around and you say, you're the four people that I'm only in the room with, so you're the ones I have to hang out with. Like, you choose your friends. This It's interesting because I know a lot of people who I, I talk to who work in restaurants do definitely uh, sort of go down that particular road and they feel completely alienated from anybody else in their life who isn't at the restaurant and that and uh, in itself perpetuating then too they miss out on occasions they miss sure. out on birthdays holidays you know all these things because their entire life becomes focused on the restaurant and in one way they don't have to pay the price of feeling alienated from their sure. colleagues but then they don't have any checks and balances outside so all of a sudden behavior starts to seem really normal that isn't too well, the nice thing about a restaurant, like, it all of a sudden gives you an excuse. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't, like, an example, like, you have a family member who has, you know, who passes away, and you don't want to go to the funeral and deal with it. But you can also say, I have to work on Saturday. Like, what do you mm -hmm. want me to do? I can't lose my job. And, that, yeah. You know, you don't realize it at the time, but it becomes a defense mechanism, too. Or, sorry, guys, I can't see you. I'm just going to go out with the work people. Yeah. You know, and you're choosing to take this side of your life that is just this one thing, is just a job, and you're letting it 
consume you so much for not the right reasons. Yeah, I don't know if I, I wonder if it's people haven't seen that behavior modeled often enough where because there is definitely this like masochism to it sure. and this almost maybe sometimes martyrdom of it. You know, I am a slave to the kitchen. Yeah. This is what I do. And anything other than that is letting down the line. So they haven't seen somebody who necessarily has those clear kind of boundaries. Did you have anybody who was showing you that this was this was a possibility? Well, I would say, you know, I, I obviously had my friends outside the restaurant who like I'm still friends with them. There's still like this dumb group text that that's awesome <laughs> randomly pops up and I'm like, oh Brian Bell, what's going on? But he like <laughs> I forgot about you up in, you know, Edmonton or where Calgary or wherever he is now. Um but I had this one chef at MK, um, a guy named Eric Williams. And oh, yeah. Eric, you know, Eric essentially like I had some very glorious moments at that restaurant. Like glorious and not a good way where it was like this is the pivotal point where I just want to walk out the back door. Yeah. And had it not been for him, I may not have continued cooking. And, um, like there was one where the, the chef at the time was going through a lot of personal things and he was not in the best place mentally in the restaurant and, you know, drinking and, you know, being a bit aggressive and, you know, trying to like prove points and, he he gave the meat cook the night off on like a like a Friday night, and I never really cooked meat. But he was like, "Gus, go home. You can have the night." And Gus was like, "Oh, okay, thank you, chef." And looks at me, and he'd always call me son. He's like, "Son, you're cooking meat tonight," and I I literally had never done this. Um, and Eric is his like hand is on the back door, and he's about to leave. Looks at me and sees like the deer in headlights go right. pale, like I'm gonna die right now. And he walks downstairs and he puts a chef coat on and comes over next to me and works the fryer. He's like, I'm not going to do this station. You're going to do it. But he, he really taught me that, you know, the, this notion of like one at the end of the day, it's just food. And two, if you take a second and take a breath and look at it and assess what you're doing, that extra second or 30 seconds or whatever saves you so much later. And so as like Steven was standing behind me yelling for the lamb, Eric would say things like, you know, I would say, is this medium rare? Can I cut it? And he would say, is it medium rare? Tell me if it's medium rare. Tell me why. And, you know, in those moments of learning how to tune this out to only focus on this, despite all the noise behind you, you know, it, it kind of, that I think was my most pivotal moment in the kitchen. And, um, like to this day, I still talk to him. Like, we'll just, we'll talk about business. We'll talk about life. We'll just like, how's your wife? How's your kid? Like, it was a two-way street. Like, he'll call my wife sometimes just to say like, hi, how are you? And what's going on? And, Anytime in Chicago, I'll try to meet up with him for a coffee. Wait, does he have? A, he has a new place. Yeah. Yeah, it's called Virtue. Right. Okay. It's just open. So I got to eat at MK when he was still cooking there, yeah. and I saw him last time I was in Chicago. Did not make it to Virtue, but he is one of those people who does not get their praises sung nearly often. No, enough. he's one of the best people I know. This is a, yeah. an opinion held by several people who I very much trust, and I, he, he just it, it makes me nuts when you have those fundamental chefs in various cities who never just never get the accolades in the yeah. same kind of way. And I, I, this is your invitation, Eric, please come on the show yeah. and we will. He's, um, I mean, there's so many people that I would come back to the restaurant or I'd always invite him into friends and family at next. And, you know, one, he'd always give me the very blunt opinion, which is what you need during a friends and family when you're right. trying to make things right. Um, but every time he'd come in, he'd come in with someone new and I'm like, who is this kid you're bringing in who just looks like a disaster? <laughs> and, at some point in talking to this kid, I'd be like, oh, that was me. Yep. Like, the kid that is sitting here right now with you was me. You know, it's someone that you're trying to inspire that you see something in. And 
I, there's in his tenure, 14 years at MK, in his entire tenure there, I, I think every like generation of cook there, there were at least one or two that he just like mentored that still talk to him that will always talk to him. Um, and he would like find people that he would meet somewhere else and decide, you know, a kitchen would be good for them. And these are like, I mean, he had a couple apartments that he bought on the South side because in like this not great area. And he's like, we're going to make this area great. And he would like meet kids out there and say like, you know, you're going to be a cook. You're going to do, this would be good for your life. And one way or another, he was always doing something to try to help the world be a better place in, in anything, whether it was community outreach, whether it was friends of friends, whether it was like taking an extra 15 minutes to have a conversation with you that he really didn't have time for, you know, just, and so like, even when I left MK and I went to true, you know, I, like every six weeks you had to work, I had to work a new station. The chef either loved me or hated me. So because of that, he's like, you're gonna learn something new. You're gonna learn something new. And my second station was the amuse station. And the whole thing about it, the amuse at uh, old true was that you had this square Bernardo plate with these four small squares on it, and each one had a different muse. And if they're a VIP, they got a second tray with four more. So you basically had to have eight new dishes every day. And I called them in a panic, you know, six weeks into working at this restaurant. I was like, I can't do this. Like, you know, I started there in this restaurant. It was right when Trotter versus True, like, best restaurant in Chicago. And Tribune did this whole thing point by point, and True won. And I was so proud of working at the best restaurant in the city. And um, I had, like, a meltdown on the phone. And I was like, I can't do this. Like, they want me to do this dish now. And I mean, it's just like, I think his, his words to me were literally stop being a bitch. Like, <laughs> you know, which, you know, obviously maybe today you, you might want to rethink those words in general, but he was very blunt. He's like, why, what is your problem? Like it, it's just food. He, he would always say it's just food and just make things taste good. And they're not going to let you fail because the restaurant doesn't want to fail. They, you know, the, the chef doesn't want to fail. He doesn't, he also doesn't want to train someone new. So they're not just going to fire you because you know, you're, almond salad sucks like someone's gonna help you uh and they did and he was right and like i'd come in some days and the the sous chef had made like you know a, a fennel soup for me or he'd made you know which i quickly learned that a fennel soup could become a fennel gazpacho could become fennel panna cotta and then it would last three days because you go from hot to cold with yeah. something else in it to adding gelatin to so yeah i had like all these tricks figured out after a couple of weeks and but yeah, I mean, he saved me at that job too. So, you know, he's anyway. Eric's a great person. I, you know, I I cannot get enough of people talking about mentors. I no. love that so much. And we, we were sort of talking before this about being a best new chef and how we're giving them mentors because that is that's some tough time yeah. when you're in the spotlight. You were in in 2014, and a bunch of stuff happened at once, right? Yeah, it was kind of a roller coaster. Um, I mean, the the whole window of like my time ending at Alinea through probably 2015 of next was like this crazy rapid fire of things. Like I'd in 2000, late 2008 through the early 2011, I was chef to cuisine of Alinea. And in that window, you know, we'd gotten three Michelin stars. We'd gotten, we'd jumped from 20, I think it was like 21 to 10 to seven in the world. Um, we had like this documentary come out about us. We were opening next when the first next review came out, it was like Phil Vitell wrote one of the best reviews I'd ever seen. And uh, you know, you're holding these things. You're like, we're doing this. And then, you know, your ego is going through the roof because you think you're like the greatest thing ever. 
Um, but then, you know, we're, we're nominated for Best New Restaurant for Beard, and we win that. And then uh, I was nominated for Rising Star, which Christina Tosti beat me at. You know, <laughs> I mean... I like to remind her still. Right. You know, it's like, you're, 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 you know, you're cereal milk. Beat us. I don't understand this. She's um, a wizard. <laughs> she's the best. I love Christina. Yeah. But, like, we did an event later on with, with Questlove, and I was talking to her. I was like, you know, you were my nemesis for a year, and you didn't know it. And she's like, yeah, I figured um <laughs> she knows she knows all yeah that. but she's great yeah. i mean we're friends um and then uh you know so i lose rising star the next year i'm nominated for best chef great lakes and i lost that to stephanie but then the following year i won best chef and we got food and wine and there was like one other accolade that year too like the in and every next menu was reviewed as a new restaurant review wow. so in no the 15 there. menus i did only i think only two or three stars every other one was four so like every you know, the, the, the second Thursday of every new menu, Vitell sat down and he reviewed us as a new restaurant. And it's like, here we go again. Here's another review and here's another thing and another thing. And so it was just like this crazy snowball of like, how many things can you throw on the pile? Yeah. yeah. So where's your mental state at that particular point when all of these, did, did you have any time to stop and have a moment and, and, and enjoy it? Or is it well, just the, oh, that's great. Like, yeah. Every 16 weeks next was a new concept. So like the day you start a new menu is the day you start the timer for when you have to change the menu. So like, you that's know, self-inflicted. That- <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wasn't inflicting on myself then as much as that was the, the concept of the restaurant. Now right. it's self-inflicted because right. <laughs> we're even more aggressive than that at Dialogue now. But, um, you know, the whole thing is that you, you know, there's no complacency, right? You, can't, you cannot sit still because if you do, you're going to lose. Like, if you're not moving forward, someone's going to catch up to you. And so, you know, at Next, that deadline of that 16 weeks and – it's not just changing the menu. It's like we went from Paris 1906 to Tour of Thailand to a childhood menu to doing a retrospective on Albuli to doing rustic Sicilian food into Japanese kaiseki. Like you're all over the place and, and you're never going to become an expert in any of it, but you have basically 16 weeks to perfect the current menu that you're doing, be- research and become an expert in the 12 to 20 courses that you're serving for the next menu while considering the upcoming menu. And, you know, it's just like, it just doesn't end. So you don't have time to take a breath and step back and see either, say either A, this is awesome and we should be proud of it, or B, like, what am I doing? I need a break. Could you, on a micro level, be like, that was a good service? Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, we'd have the service meeting every day and I'd talk to the staff. And, you know, you're, you're, you're the voice, right? You're like the one that, I mean, obviously everyone's there for Ackett's, but on the day-to-day, I'm the one who's talking to him. And so, you know, and we had, it, it goes in waves where like he is the chef owner is there, you know, for like a month every day. And then he's not there for three months because he's at a linear, he's traveling or he's doing his thing, you know, because obviously he has even more on his plate than we have. And so that's when it's like, okay, this is mine. And then someone's back and you're like, okay, well now I step back for a minute. And so you have to keep the team motivated and encouraged. And you go from like, you, you, then you're the coach. Right. You're the one who's like trying to inspire everyone and trying to lead them. And, you know, if if I'm doing everything, then I'm not really doing anything. So you have to get everyone to to buy into it, to believe in what you're doing. Yeah. Delegation is is something that I know is really hard for a lot of people who are perfectionists, mm-hmm. who are thing. But that's the only way a restaurant can run. If you teach somebody to be you, if you if you try and and 
and trust them to do the things that you do. So how is it that you impart that? Is it do they watch you to like, what, how does that happen? You know, Will Gadara and I, um, I've been friends with like him and Daniel for years. They did their first, their like celebratory dinner of getting hired at Love Madison Park. They did Alinea. And so I met them like way back. And when Will and Daniel first like took over, like owned EMP, when they, when it first became theirs. That was huge. Yeah. And they did a big remodel and they redid like the coffee area and took some tables out of the dining room. Uh, Will was walking me through and he was really excited about this tea program that they were doing. And I was like, when do you have time to do tea? And then I started, I, was, I thought about more. I was like, are you, are you even the SOM? You're just the GM here? Because in my head, it's like the GM is the SOM, is the, like, you're the master of everything. And he's like, I'm really excited about this tea program. We had this food runner who was, you know, excited and he did a tasting for us and talked about it. And we said, make a tea program. I've, oh, I've interviewed and him. I forget his name, but he, he's so deeply well, steeped in it. Like, he loves it, tea. Like, it's, that's it's it. So, yeah. It just comes off in him in waves how much he loves this and that he knows he's trusted. Yeah, and also Will, Will said, you know, I only have this much to give, right? And so if, it's, if my pie is, you know, 100%, right, and, and I want to do a tea program, he's like, I can only afford to give 10% of my time to that. And I'm not, whether I'm passionate about it or not, my 10% will never be as, even if it's the best 10% in the world, will never be as good as your 100% that you believe in. So his 10% was given to empowering an individual to give 100% and supporting them, not focusing on tea. And, you know, it it was like this just big analogy for like, the best thing that I can do is step back, admit what I can't do and relinquish control or empower someone to do that role because... Look, I'll never, I'll never have a bread program in my restaurants unless we have a great baker come on board because I don't have the time. I haven't done enough bread to, you know, make great bread, and I don't have the time right now to learn how to make great bread. Right. Like I'm not going to devote the next three years of my life to becoming a bread expert. So, you know, I hope that someone walks in one day and wants to be a great baker, and I can. I hope we can open their bakery for them. But, you know, thinking about that and realizing that, like that's how you make things better is, is by not taking on more, but letting go. Yeah. You know, like look at the best CEOs. Do you think like, you know, any one of them are doing everything? You know, it was like, even like, like Steve jobs at Apple was not the one creating all of the computers and the iPod. He was empowering people to do things like, you know, all the things that come out of Google are not one person at the top of the pyramid. Right. It's like you have this downtime designed for you to do whatever you want to do. Just show that something comes of it. Yeah. So when you went from Next to Dialogue, so Next had been within a group that mm-hmm. you had been part of. Dialogue's yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have investors or anything. It's like my uh, my couple partners are one half and I'm the other for the most part. So that's a different set of skills and responsibilities and all that, but also freedoms. Yeah. So, you know, I really took what, like I thought, I mean, Will told me that, like, probably like 2012, right? It was like a long time ago. And, um, you know, that's always kind of resonated. And so when we were um, talking about dialogue with, before it was dialogue, when it was just like a restaurant in a totally different restaurant, um, one of the things that struck me as I was thinking about how companies work is like, you know, if you're a great cook, you probably become a tornat and then you become a sous chef. And you probably didn't get management training, but you're an okay sous chef because you're really talented and you can just run people over so they all listen to you. And then 
you know, then you become the chef de cuisine and hopefully you're decent at that. And then you're like, well, I want to do my own thing. And so now you're running a restaurant and you spend all of your time looking at labor costs and P&Ls and spreadsheets and so on. And everything that made you great at what you're doing, you don't, you're, you don't do anymore. And you're just hoping that the people under you believe that you could do it and they're trying to do it with you. And, you know, I think that's why a lot of, I mean, that's part of the reason a lot of restaurants fail is because it's not due to lack of talent. It's because the people who are really good at doing things aren't doing what they're good at doing. Yeah. And, um, you know, after I'd left the, the group, um, I was really trying to understand like how we would do the business side of it because I don't want to do that. I want to cook. Um, and at that time, the Anne, who was the director of business ops for the group, was leaving, and she asked me if I'd do a letter of recommendation for her. And you know, we kind of went back and forth and talked. And she'd already quit at this point now because we, you know, she was planning on leaving, and I think she really wanted to work for like Gabe Stallman. Um, you know, she like loved the philosophy of everything. It's very huggy. Yeah, and <laughs> and you know, she she was always like very culture driven. She came from a, a she was a trader. Uh, for like 10 years, she's, you know, MIT grad and Kellogg Business School and so on. Um, has no business being in the restaurant industry. <laughs> I'm way too smart for that. Um, but we were talking about it, and, and I was talking about this whole idea of, like, changing cultures and empowering people to do the jobs they're doing and so on. And we eventually, she joined our company, and we made her a partner in it. And so she runs all of our operations. So, you know, she had these kind of crazy ideas that I hadn't really thought of because there were just things that had never been in my realm. Like I'd never seen a P and L ever, you know, been shielded from that. Because yeah. And so like you'd get a text saying your food cost is too high or what's going on with labor. We need to rein this in. But you know, you never, you just knew like this menu is doing really poorly. This menu is doing incredible next week. It's doing terrible, but it's the exact same thing. And you don't understand why. Um, so, you know, she was really, she was reading a lot about Zingerman's and what they oh, do. Yeah. Um, Did she do Zing Train? I don't know. She she is buying us all of Zingerman's books right now for oh, all yeah. of us to read as like staff book club. I think that's wonderful. So, and, and they do that whole training program okay. that you can go and do, and it's incredible. I'm, I'm sure if she finds it, she will end up doing it. She's, like, <laughs> she's just a sponge. She's like one of those people who's way too smart for everything she does. And um, so the first thing she wanted to do was an open book policy. And so every month we sit down with the entire staff and hand them a copy. The entire staff being nine people, including <laughs> myself and the dishwashers. How many nine. seats is this? Uh, 19. Okay. Yeah. So we do, we can max out at 38 a night. Usually anything over 30 is a sold out night if like the single diner doesn't sell because we have a single diner spot that doesn't always sell. Um, or if like a four is a three and, you know, whatever. Um, so anything over 30 is pretty much sold out. Um, but you know, she wanted to learn the culture of the restaurant. So, and we didn't have the budget for more employees and she didn't have enough work. So she started pouring water. Like she learned how to pour water day one of friends and family. Um, and she worked service for, I don't know, a year, almost a year and a half. She quit working service like three months ago when the new restaurant thing started. But she had all these ideas that were exciting, like open book P&Ls. And then as soon as we paid off the restaurant, we immediately set up a profit share thing with the entire staff. Wow. And so, you know, everyone has a very, I mean, it's not a lot, but it's essentially a bonus structure based off of profits that's paid monthly. And so, you know, she figured out that um, in looking at the reservations and the trends, you know, if you notice that a night's not filling up as quickly, rather than doing 26 each night, 
if you shut off the reservations on the backside one night, so you only do 18, it pushes the people the other days, and then you end up doing like 30 the other days, so you're full. But then on that night where you only have a single seating, you save on labor cost, right? And you save on basically all of the all of the costs go down. And it sucks for maybe you as a cook because you lose a few hours of work that week. But because we profit shared, she figured out the restaurant was more profitable. So you make that money back. That's brilliant. But yeah, she's, she's too smart for this job. <laughs> um, but, you know, she started trying to put systems in place like yeah. that. And these are things that, like, as you're, you know, by default is now giving me the freedom to actually focus on the creative process and the restaurant and the food because I don't have to think that, like, what does the P&L look like this week? And or this month. And then because of that, now that the staff has an open book policy, they're looking at things like, oh, we just did a menu transition. Our food cost was high. Why was it high? Now they're calling purveyors or we're talking about dishes and we're saying, well, how do we streamline this? What can we do with that? Well, you know, this farmer has peaches that, you know, we don't need the aesthetic of the peaches because we're making a peach puree. So I'll talk to them about getting a flat of bruised ones because they're sweeter and more ripe anyway. So now McKenna, who handles it, she handles all of our farm relationships. She's like, well, I bet I can get the food cost down this way, which not because she's trying to make more money, but she's excited about playing the game with it. And then by default, because of the profit share, they ultimately make more money anyway. So it's all gamified. Yeah. Because, <laughs> and everyone's excited about it. Everyone's talking yeah. about it. Like, you know, you have a cook say like, hey, it's, you know, maybe we only have 11 on the backside and it doesn't have to be four of us. And, you know, someone's, you know, like, Daniel, our pastry guy, maybe his girlfriend's in town. He's going to spend the evening with her. But also that single seating day lets people come in late one day or leave early that night. So quality of life improves. Um, you know, she started working on pay structure with a no tipping system. And no, like, service fee. Just no service fee, no tipping anything. It's just the price. And, um, you know, we wanted to see if that would work. And the nice thing about Dialogues is it's a very small controlled model where when you change something, you immediately see the effect. Because it's, it's it's so little, you know. So we could we could do things like you know, adjust the pay accordingly and profit share and, you know, make sure that people were paid the right amount of money so that they could have a proper quality of life outside of work as well as at work. I mean, I think dialogue is the perfect name for it inside and out. It seems yeah, like. Yeah, I mean, everything about it, the restaurant unintentionally named itself. It was supposed to be, so the original concept was this, like, it was an old bank space downtown. It was like 10,000 square feet and it was a higher-end a la carte French, and inside it was a 28-seat fine dining, and then we are going to put a speakeasy in one of the bank vaults. And as that lease was kind of not coming to fruition, we also looked at it, and I thought, this this restaurant feels more of a ego-y show-off thing, like I'm planting my flag in a new city, and here I am, as opposed to a restaurant that was letting us become a part of the city. And so, you know, as we were looking at this new thing and this new concept, we said, well, we need to invest in the city first. And so we started talking about the importance of the engagement with the diners and the conversation, because we're a counter. So there's, you know, eight seats at a counter and then two four tops and a two seated. Um, so it's there's so much conversation back and forth and this level of interaction that we have. Um, and the word dialogue just kept coming up. It's kind of like how, how Keller named Per Se. He kept saying it's not French Laundry, Per Se. And it became Per Se. Um, we kept talking about dialogue, and it stuck. And then, so that was the initial reason for the restaurant. But then as we started talking about it more, it's like this name keeps resonating. It's resonating just like you said, but now we're even realizing that this whole restaurant is our dialogue with Southern California. Everything is so localized and market-driven, not because we're trying to be like cliche, like this is farm to table. Mm -hmm. It's just, 
when everything is right there in front of you and it's all new and interesting, you don't have to look outside of it for inspiration. You know, I don't have to go to, um, you know, some like crazy tropical island to find this very special mangosteen because the celery outside that grows wild is like blowing my mind and I've never had celery like that. You know, or I'm able to pick a nasturtium vine that's 12 feet long that has every size leaf and seed and flower and root. So why would I not be excited about that instead of, you know, this thing that I have to fly in from wherever or, you know, my little plastic clamshell of petite nasturtium leaves? I mean, I've seen the food just on Instagram and it just, it makes me want to know more about the place, more about it, just everything that's around it and the hands that make it and it's beautiful food. Yeah, it, it's been interesting because I think for so long, you know, the, the philosophy was always, what else can we add? How, what more can we do to this? Or, you know, it's like, how far can we push this? And you know, there, there was definitely this mentality of, and I'm sure there still is at restaurants where it's like, you can put 18 things on your plate, but I can put 25. So I'm better. <laughs> like we sit at a poker table and I have a thousand dollars, but you have a million dollars. You're going to win. And all of a sudden at this little restaurant, when we realized that, you know, we only have 760 square feet and there's four of us in the kitchen, we do a 21 course menu, right? So you realize that like, maybe the impact doesn't lie in showing how much you can do, maybe the impact lies in showing the restraint and the focus. And instead of saying, what else can we add? It's that whole like Coco Chanel um, quote of, before you leave, take one thing off. Mm -hmm. Like what can we remove from this dish that will make the rest of it matter that much more? Yeah, I love that. And are you still getting time to... I, I was reading a bio of you. I was like, he doesn't have much spare time, but when, <laughs> but the time he does have, he uses for you know training for marathons. And so, is, is that still a large component of of your life? And how do you translate that to your staff? Yeah, I think it's shifted a little bit. Um, you know, I think I've signed up for three LA marathons now, and I haven't run any. <laughs> um, you know, I think motivation for why you do things shifts. And for me, like running in Chicago, I loved running there. Um, and I just wanted to be outside and it was like my escape from everything. Yeah. Um, in LA, I haven't found that draw to running where I can break the 10 mile mark of like, I'm still into this and it's still sucking me in. I still love it. So I bike a lot more. Um, and you know, the crazy thing about LA, like I didn't really, the first year living there was terrible. Like it was really hard for my wife and I, and you know, I think whenever you go somewhere new, you always try to replace the things that you've lost rather than, and you know, it's like, where's my neighborhood bar? Or where is that, that loop I would take my dog on? Or, you know, just all those little things that you miss. And it took a year to stop missing the things we didn't have and appreciate the things we did because it affords you a lot of things that you can't get anywhere else. And so for my apartment, I can be like lost in the mountains in eight miles. Wow. And so in biking, like in two hours, I can cover so much more than I can on a run. And that's been such a, a point of, you know, escape, but also inspiration. Like our, our entire restaurant menu philosophy is based around this idea of seasons, you know, and, and that really comes from looking at the farmer's market and seeing strawberries in December and coriander flowers and squash. And you're like, well, this is three seasons. This is not right. one. <laughs> you're blowing my mind. You know, stuff is just coming in in New York. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had lilacs in March. Oh, goodness. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, and so, you know, this, I wasn't ready to do dishes with all these things in December. And so we thought, well, let's, we modeled 
our menu loose, very loosely after the idea of Kaiseki in the sense that you, you know, transcends three seasons and it creates forward progress through the menu. And so everything has become kind of a caricature of our idea of a season because they're not as exemplified in LA. And so in biking, you know, I, I go out in the mountains and all of a sudden I've learned that in the winter, old Topanga Canyon smells like eucalyptus, which, you know, for me, winter growing up is when your nose hairs freeze and it's really cold, right? <laughs> but eucalyptus kind of has that effect. So you can find your feeling of winter. And Payuma Canyon in the mornings in like December and January has frost on the ground in the shade. And Mandeveld Canyon, you get fallen leaves and it looks like autumn. So exploring and being outside is one, you know, that physical outlet of just like, yeah. I need to burn myself out in a way that's a different kind of fatigue and just like blow off some steam or just not think about anything. But also you find things and you find things the most when you're not looking to find them or, you know, as long as you're, you know, the, the blinders are off and you're just willing to take in whatever happens, you see all of these things that you weren't ready to see. And then you're taking this and also putting it into Pajoli, which is coming up. So yeah. I was getting the wrap it up symbol. But, yeah. but tell us about uh, Pajoli and what the philosophy is there. It's the total opposite of dialogue. Like if dialogue <laughs> is like if dialogue is the theater set where you know the library has and a theater has like a table, a bookshelf, a lamp. Um, Pajoli is the movie set version of that, where it's like three three rows back. You care about the top right bookshelf and the wear patterns in the carpet and you know so on. Like dialogue is all about the focal point of the story on the plate and sparsely decorated and it's you know very minimal so that you can just fill in the blanks with your mind. And the diners are, you know, the energy and the ambiance. Um, Pajoli is that elevated neighborhood bistro, the one where, you know, it's okay to get dressed up and travel across the city and spend a fortune if you want to get a magnum of this and tableside caviar and a duck press, or you can walk in off the street and dress normal and just treat it like a bistro. Like we don't want it to identify as any like category of X level of fine dining. It's just, you know, it's like a, a market driven French restaurant. You know, people talk about French food and you're often hung up in the weight of French food. Right, like the butter, the cream. That yeah, and you know, I, I think a lot of the disconnect is that you you don't think about like the Parisian markets and how great the produce is there, and how in the right season those heavy weighty French restaurants aren't heavy weighty French restaurants. And so we're really looking at that genre of French cuisine as an à la carte restaurant, with you know the whole like classic like service à la russe. Like this is your appetizer, this is your entree, this is your dessert, not like order two to three things in the kitchen, I'll paste it, and, you know, here's your share plates. But, like, you know, a classic, nice, proper French restaurant that doesn't feel old. You know, good energy, good... Sp- you have a ton of them in New York. You know, I just ate it, like, four of them. Um, <laughs> With, and you're going to have a mobile duck press? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love the duck press. I mean, the first time I did it was at, uh, when we were testing recipes for Next, and we did it in the Alinea dining room. Um, as like on a press day, it was a disaster. We got the press that morning, we bought two birds and then I did one for, you know, I think like Francis was there maybe, Mm -hmm. or, um, there was like someone from New York Times. It was a disaster. It took me like 25 minutes. I shot blood across the dining room. (laughs) Um, but we did it at next for Paris 1906. We did it for the Paris Bistro. I think I did squab press for the hunt. For menu two at Dialogue, we did a duck press, but we didn't, we didn't make a spectacle out of it because we can't wheel a cart around anyway. So I just pressed a bird on the counter. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's certain things I love eating and there's certain things I love cooking. And I see this restaurant as an outlet for that genre. I can't wait. Yeah, I it's can, like, when is it happening? Uh, 
I'm going to say late August, but probably early September. <laughs> uh, it's under construction now. So, right. you know, it'll be sometime late summer to early fall. Oh, my like, gosh. Construction should end the end of July, and then we have to get the staff in, trained, and test dinners and things like that. Just so. need to know when to buy my ticket. <laughs> right. It's going to be awesome. Oh, my gosh. I have a few questions that I ask everybody. Yeah. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> So you put a lot of, you know, so much energy into your restaurants, into, you know, mentoring the people around you, all this stuff. What is the selfish thing that you want for you? Because I believe in saying things out loud so the universe can help you get them. I mean, like, like the, um, like the personal selfish thing. Yes. <laughs> It'd be nice to be like, you know, be able to just take a week off and relax and go somewhere. It'd be nice to be out of debt. Out of debt's a good thing. Yes. Um, you know, it's like. <laughs> Just remove some stressors. I don't know. I'm pretty happy with where I'm at. Like I, pretty. I live walking distance from the ocean. I've got two awesome dogs and a great wife. Like, you know, I ride my bike to work every day, and I ride past one restaurant to get to the other. It's usually sunny. So, at least let's get you a week off. Let's start yeah, there. We'll start there. I'm sure my wife would appreciate that more than I would. So. <laughs> You're gonna be like checking the camera on your phone, and right? She's like, "What are you doing? <laughs> Go somewhere without Wi-Fi." Right? It'd be great. Oh. We didn't even take a honeymoon. We took like four days off of work and came to New York and I had dinner and we ran, I ran a marathon and then we were back. <laughs> so she keeps saying like, five years, let's do a honeymoon. Ten yes. years, let's do a honeymoon. I so, agree with your wife. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I owe it to her. She puts up with a lot. <laughs> so I want that for you and I want that for her. Thank you. So what's your comfort food? I eat like a child outside work. Do tell. Um, I mean, people ask all the time at the restaurant, like, where do you go to eat? And, you know, everyone cringes that I work with as soon as they ask. Cause like most people say, Oh, this is my favorite restaurant and go check that out. And I'm like, there's this terrible Mexican place down the street that does like nachos and a, like a Mexican Caesar salad. And I put the salad on the nachos kind of thing. Nachos oh. are absolutely my comfort food. I love Buffalo wings. Oh, I grew up in Syracuse. Right. So you have Buffalo a wing is like with like blue cheese. I love it. I don't know why. I also like Diet Coke a lot. I used to drink two to four liters a day of Diet Coke. Well, I grew up with my dad always having the two liter next to his recliner. Yeah. And like as a little kid, you go over and take a sip out of it. Um, <laughs> I haven't had one in, oh gosh, probably almost 10 years now, but I crave it so badly. You know, it's, it's fine. I mean, it's great, <laughs> but it's like nothing good comes of it. You know, there's like nothing in it that your body's like, I need that. There was that Diet Coke ad that was trolling Alinea. Oh, I didn't see this. Oh, Tom Clickio was in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did see that. That's funny. <laughs> that was kind of amazing. Which is he... funny because Atkins used to drink a lot of Diet Coke. <laughs> like, a lot. <laughs> All the time. It was like that and his bottle of Perrier were, with lemons were always on the pass. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I, if, if I drank one today, I would drink like the whole two liter of it. Uh, Any mini cans. Oh, little like eight know. ounces. Like those, little pla- those ones from the plane. Like yeah, or those, little like screw up bottles. Yeah. Those are kind of amazing. Yeah, they're great. I love that. Like the one shop. Yeah, dear Diet Coke, please sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you get out of debt. Right? Diet Coke needs to sponsor you. <laughs> one day. Yeah. <laughs> so what is the last meal that you had that made you emotional? Oh, man. Um, when I ate at Single Thread, oh, I yeah. think... It wasn't about the meal as much as I, I mean, the meal was incredible. Like, don't get me wrong, but I had known Kyle and, and Katina forever. And so like I, I met Kyle when he was still at Fat Duck and um, like the, the Japanese Kaiseki mini that we did at Next wouldn't have happened without him. I talked to him probably two, three times a week and it was like, he was the one saying, you know, cut the apples this way because in autumn you do it that way. And 
you know, you have to turn the IU this way on the plate for this reason, and that course has to come after this, but before this, and if you're going to do 17 courses, you need to add these two specific ones. And, um, you know, he talked about what became single thread for a long time. He talked about different iterations of it, and I'd seen, you know, photos of, like, different drawings of different ideas of properties, and then um, I was up there for something and saw it before it was opening when his, like, chef de cuisine was nailing leather to the wall around the little... I don't know if you've eaten there, but they have, like, no. these poles, and there's, like, this cool little leather strap thing, and his chef de cuisine or sous chef made them. Um, and it was, like... It wasn't open yet, but he was just talking about, you know, the tiles in the wall and how the gradient changes color because all that clay was harvested from their farm and they're digging the irrigation ditches and, you know, their, like, friend burned all of this vegetable ash and dyed each tile a different color from the vegetable. Like, all of these things. So that restaurant is one of these rare moments where it is genuinely, like, I couldn't have that restaurant because my story is not in those walls. You know, that's his restaurant and his story, and no one can replace that. And so then coming back there a little over a year later and eating it and just seeing that and seeing him in that kitchen, knowing how long it took and the journey that he took to get there and, you know, the the genuine moment of, like, no, these 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 curtains are this, like, hand-woven by this woman who did the DNA strand of for each month of, like, the vegetable in the garden. So, like... This is October's onion curtain kind of thing or whatever season. It might mean maybe it's a turn up. I don't know. Um, but like to see that and to actually sit there and now have it translate to the food, that was really special. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's one of those things where I think everyone could have the story or nobody could have the story. And it doesn't really matter because it's, you know, it doesn't have to be about that. But it's there and it exists and that level of thought. I mean, that level of thought inspired the way that we think about a lot of things at our restaurant. Oh my gosh. You know, it's it's rare that you get to see all of those stages of someone leading up to that moment where they hand you the first bite. Book your tickets now. Right. <laughs> what is the last meal that someone cooked for you in their home? I don't know. No one cooks for chefs. Well, no, here's the thing is like I, I hate cooking at home. Like I, I hate it. It's, it's just, it, it, it annoys me. I get that, yeah. My home kitchen's a disaster, and I don't get to see my friends or my wife that much, so I would rather sit at a really mediocre restaurant where I can just have a conversation than be frustrated in the kitchen thinking I'm making better food than that. Right. You know, any restaurant, any place. Like, um, And so the same is true with friends, where it's like you go over to a friend's house and I get stressed out because they're trying to cook, and then I want to have help them, and then we're not really hanging out, and... Um, I think the last time someone cooked for me, I have this friend, Alon Gale, who lives in LA and he, um, he and his girlfriend, Molly love cooking and throwing dinner parties. And he has like a whole Instagram about his food and what he makes. And like, um, super cool guy comes to the restaurant a bunch. He might've been the last person to cook me food, like at a home. He made, they made pasta together and we came over cause that's what they do together. Yeah. Like that's their bonding time. It's like the opposite of my bonding time. <laughs> um, I think that might have been the last like time I sat with someone who cooked a meal and ate it. I really want someone to cook yeah. for you. <laughs> I mean, someone else may have done it since, and I'm yeah. sorry if I forgot you. <laughs> um, but that's I think that's the last one that I remember where like, you know, they had this thing and she baked her mom's pie and you know, but that's what they do together. That's like that's really that's an yeah. act of love then to get to feed people to yeah. do that and then to feed people. And they're really great people too. So it's like exciting to go and hang out with them and just chat. And, 
so nice. Yeah. What living musician would you want to cook for, and what would you cook for them? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Music's been a huge driving force in our restaurant, our menu structure, our thought process, like uh, yeah. understanding this idea of full albums and how we translate that philosophy to our menu structure. Um, I don't know. Like for a while it was Questlove because the roots were so... I thought you were going to say that. But I've cooked for him a few times. <laughs> right. And like I've cooked with him and I've met him. And so you know, I'm trying to think like... I mean, there's musicians I've always wanted to meet because I'm really intrigued by what they're doing. You know, like, I think Trent Reznor's hit so many different layers of brilliance. Oh, yeah. Um, he, he broke my brain in high school and it's yeah. never recovered. I think, you know, from an artist's perspective, which I don't know this individual at all. I've never met them. I don't know anyone who knows them. But I've always been intrigued by Marilyn Manson. Oh, yes. In the way that he's, for so many years, essentially created this character that he's lived through, but... I imagine there's so many facets. It's it, it, and it's like it transcends music, and he's, you know, a painter, and now he's acting, and I'm sure there's so many layers to him that I would just want to like pick his brain. Um, but he, what do you say to him when he's sitting there? Like, I want to interview you. Like, that's you weird. just feed him. Um, yeah. Um, uh, Kendrick Lamar. Oh yeah. Is like I mean, I've been Kendrick Kanye. Like these are all people who. Have a, have a perspective. And I always, whether you agree with someone's perspective or not, the fact that there's an individual who genuinely believes in something, and it, I think it's rare to find someone who truly believes in something and it is willing to defend that and go for it. It's like, I can respect that. I may not agree with what you're saying, but I can agree with the fact that you believe in something because so many people are so wishy-washy on everything. I want this to happen for you. I want I want right. Marilyn Manson to come into dialogue <laughs> and have that single diner seat. Yeah, right? And just sit there? Yes. He'll be like, what is this? <laughs> you know? Oh, my gosh. I, was, I mean, part of the reason I put this question out out there is you know, on the off chance that one of them is listening. Right? I mean, I, I just – we're really fortunate dialogue that we don't get a lot of, like – celebrities in like the actor world yeah. but we get a lot of creatives like writers directors composers you know more of that creative mindset and that's really been interesting like uh this guy david nutter who directed three of the last six game of thrones and did like the red wedding and he's been in three times now four times maybe and every time he, like he ate when it was like episode four of the last season he's like what do you think so far and he's really excited and oh, wow there's a documentary afterwards where they follow them all around and he's the only director they had who hand draws all of his scenes first um and i was just talking about the creative process and james gunn comes in who did uh, oh yeah you know he's coming in again guardians this of the week galaxy or next. and i think he's been for like five menus and you know it's really interesting to talk to these creatives because it's such a different world but it's not you know yeah. david cho Oh, yeah. We have two of his paintings on our wall. And, he, like, he's, like, he baffles me because there's so much talent there. And, like, he's just quiet and peaceful and, like, hangs out and chats. But he's, like, he's a super, like, interesting guy. His work's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's more of, like, the – it's not about the individual as much as there's certain creative aspects that I'm really intrigued by. Like, I want to find other – creatives and understand the creative process because it's you know you hit writer's block or you you know oh, you need to find yeah, another perspective on things yeah i love that and last question if you have five uninterrupted minutes for self-care what do you do oh god i'll nap 
I don't know. <laughs> I never nap. So <laughs> um, if there's like five minutes where I don't have to think and decompress and I can just like sit, that's enough. That's like peace. Like sometimes when I come home from work, we have our garage. We kind of turn into like a guest room slash my bike room, whatever you want to call it. And sometimes I'll just sit there after work. And before I go into the house, I'll just kind of sit there and zone out. And like my phone doesn't really work in there. And you know, it's just like this room with just my things, like my old goalie helmets in there and my bikes. And um, you just like shut down for a minute and get rid of all the noise. I also garden too. That's a new thing. Oh, so I that's fun that. too. I like like picking all the dead leaves off. and It's really meditative. Yeah. I stole a passion fruit from the neighbor's yard. And I'd like <gasps> clean the seeds <laughs> and dried them and then sprouted them and planted them. And now we have two different types of passion fruit vines covering our whole yard. And now you have to go and give one to your neighbor for stealing. I mean, it was over the fence. So <laughs> oh, I think it was so fair game. Windfall. Yeah, I didn't like it. It just reached up. So, <laughs> so we're going to turn the lights out now and you're going to have a nap while <laughs> I read the... That's going to be my Uber ride to the airport. While I read the address. <laughs> I was like, just thank you so much for coming in today. Yeah. I know you're an incredibly busy man in motion and I appreciate you taking the time to, to sit with me. And for everybody listening, please follow him on social. It's mostly DC Baron. Everything's DC it Baron. It's DC Baron. You can go to Dialogue and hopefully August, September, go to Pajali. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, I need to rethink some things. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you to our producers, Jennifer Martinick and Alicia Cabral. Thanks to Douglas Wagner for our delightful theme song. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, write a review, or rate us. It helps other people find us, and gosh, we want to keep doing this show. If there is something you'd like for us to talk about or a guest you'd like to hear from, please let us know. You can find me on Twitter at Kitten with a Whip. Find out more about the show and catch up on all the episodes at foodandwine.com and Food and Wine's YouTube page. Thanks for listening. Take good care of yourself till the next time. <laughs>